My name's Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames cast and on today's episode I'm going to be taking a look at the film Timbuktu, also a look at the recent Blu-ray release of the quite frankly incredible It Follows. And today's show is going to be a little bit shorter than normal um, just because I've been a little bit busy uh, with work and a couple of other things and I wanted to not only do a a couple of reviews but also something happened quite recently which it was strange because it didn't really kind of dawn on me um, how actually quite sad I was um, at the passing of the composer James Horner and I don't know to my knowledge that I've ever kind of dedicated um, a significant space of time on one of these episodes to talk about um, soundtracks in general or at least a composer I, I'm not sure I'm, I, my mind's kind of um, hazy going on on the kind of the, the back catalogue of, of, of shows that I've done and apart from it being obviously incredibly sad that he died 61 years old I mean he's still got many many years ahead of him and in, in some of those years of course we would have had even more kind of music from him I do seem to recall that I was quite perhaps dismissive of his soundtracks in more recent years and I, st- I stand by um, that in the fact that I simply didn't warm to them as much as I had done but especially kind of the Avatar soundtrack, which um, I, th- I found vaguely excruciating, actually. It was one of the things about that film that I disliked quite intently. And there was, yeah, I-, I think we have to kind of look at films like The Amazing Spider-Man and, um, you know, The Karate Kid, films like that. It was kind of very forgettable films. And I, I mean, well, in fact, saying that, I haven't actually even watched any of them, but they're kind of films which kind of come and go and I, I have no interest really. And I don't ever hear anyone kind of, saying, oh, you know, it was a crap film, but the score was amazing. So I haven't even listened to those, so I can't really come and comment on those. But certainly there's a few that I, I just, I simply didn't like at all. And I, I felt he was kind of like riffing off himself a little bit too much. But when I began to kind of think about James Horner, I kind of realised something which was quite revealing in a while. And it kind of took me on a journey really back to when I first began to kind of really get into films because I think... Looking back, one of the most emotional moments in my young life, and it wasn't Palace losing the FA Cup in 1990. It certainly wasn't my pet, my my pet cat Sylvester dying. It was a moment, really, which I thought was far more important than that, and that kind of transcended anything at the time in terms of importance. And I remember, I distinctly remember the first time um, seeing this particular scene boo-hooing quite intently to my father who was in possession of a spoiler for the next film in this this series I'm going to be talking about next who kind of revealed kind of kept that back from me and very kindly taped the follow-up to the film the next week and I was able to kind of see this character come back to life but the moment I'm talking about is of course when Spock died in the Star Trek The Wrath of Khan and this was a film which was on repeat during my childhood I can't I can't remember how many times um, I saw it but the impact of seeing Spock's coffin fired off into space and when Kirk gives that eulogy it was a spine tingling moment even then and suddenly we kind of hear kind of Spock come back and he does that famous opening um, those, they go, seek out new world speech from Star Trek and it was it's just such a moving brilliant moment um especially because i guess 
I, I, I think I, I like the original Star Trek series a lot more in my head than I do in, in reality. But I, I used to watch it all the time when I was younger. And the concept that one of these characters could die was just mind-boggling to me. And the only thing that kind of made this scene more powerful was the fact that I had to, or more painful as it were, I, I suppose, was the fact that I had to wait for the VHS tape to rewind before I could press play again and watch the film again. But there was something about that moment that just completely transfixed me. And it was, I think, looking back now, it was the music of, of James Horner that I found at the time both incredibly uplifting, very emotional, and also kind of euphoric in a kind of strange way. And it was then I began to notice that I would see his names on films and on soundtracks. And I always used to see it. I, I always used to kind of, if, if I saw a film that I was gonna watch, for example, films like Patriot Games, that was another film I used to watch that loads. I, I still think that's a brilliant film. Um, but I, I used to kind of see his name and it was kind of like, I guess, this is the era before I really began to kind of, I suppose, look at films in the auteur sense as kind of directors. I think that happened around about 95 with Michael Mann, but certainly my, James Horner, he was a name I would look out for in films. I didn't have access then to things like Internet Movie Database. I didn't buy film magazines. I didn't really have any kind of encyclopedia of films to kind of refer to. So he was a name I used to look out for. And I think... I suppose it's time just to kind of clarify one thing because you don't often hear um, composers talked about on, on podcasts uh, in, in any great detail and I think perhaps one of the reason um, that might be is because I think people might be a little bit too afraid perhaps of not being able to comment that much on the music itself other than the fact they like it and I don't, I don't know the first thing about music other than the fact that some of it I listen to some of it I don't and I have I suppose kind of a, quite an eclectic taste in music and I don't sort of say that kind of self-congratulatory but I, I will listen to anything um anything bar R&B I suppose I should add that caveat but uh, yeah I, I will happily sit here as my neighbor pointed out the other day one minute um the walls are shaking to the melodic beat of techno and the next thing I will be listening to the complete works of Chopin and it, it's just one of those things I, I I will listen to anything and if 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 that band happened to be popular at the time, then so be it. I'm not really bothered about following fads, though. I'll just listen to what I like. But I don't know anything about the technicalities of music. I can't comment what, the, what a C minor sounds like. I can't kind of say, I can't kind of sit there and applaud a kind of a guitar solo on the basis of its technical ability. I simply don't know. I just like what I listen to, which I think in many respects, I, I dare say that's the same for a lot of people. And it really kind of hit home that his scores have been kind of intrinsically linked with my journey through films over the years. And of course, it all did begin with Khan. And I think, bear in mind, Horner was 29 when he wrote this score and he'd already been working in Hollywood for two years. And he'd you know, noticed he worked with Roger Corman, which I think everyone seems to do if you kind of wanted to earn your way in cinema in the 70s and 80s. It, I think Roger Cor the Roger Corman School of Film Production was a very good one by all accounts. And I mean, he'd always, always already sorry, worked with... Um, Oliver Stone on the film The Hand, which unfortunately it's one of the Stone films I've never actually watched. I think it's actually quite hard to get hold of as well, um, but I've certainly never seen it. And um, yeah, you know, 1982, and obviously kind of Nicholas Mayer had taken over the, the, the series, and it's well documented. And I, I can recommend listening to Mayer's brilliant um, commentary on on the Star Trek discs that he was kind of bought in to kind of take it away from the 
I guess the kind of the more sciencey, kind of more heady direction that had been going on with the TV series, and the in the hugely underrated Star Trek the Motion Picture. Um, I, I suppose a quick side note here: go back and watch that film um, on the biggest screen you possibly can. Uh, I mean, I know it's easy to say. Um, bearing in mind, I do have a projector, which unfortunately is still at the projector clinic being fixed, but I, I, it's it's incredible Star Trek the Motion Picture. And someone complained about it to me and said, oh, it's just like a big budget version of one of the episodes. I was like, yeah, I think that's kind of the point. But obviously with Ruff Khan, they had decided to go in a completely kind of different direction. And there was certainly a kind of a more nautical film, um, sorry, theme to the film. And for me, the, the magic of this score begins about 30 seconds into the main title. And we, of course, we hear that kind of familiar opening tune and it's hard not to associate so Star Trek when you hear that with kind of shoddy sets and kind of laughable villains. And, and I, I, it kind of plays on, on, on that nostalgia. And then after about 30 seconds, something rather dramatic happens. And suddenly the strings run away and the pace quickens. And you feel that, although you're in the familiarity of Star Trek, this is something very, very different indeed. And of course you feel like you're on the high seas. And as I said, this was kind of this this direction Mayer wanted to take the film and he wanted to kind of make it more militaristic and Khan is it's the first kind of Star Trek action film as it were and it has a kind of the feel of a Napoleonic war film taking part on the high seas and instead kind of well, the ocean has been swapped for nebulas and islands for planets but the iconography in that score is all there and present and I was mesmerised by it as a child and the film in general but a lot of that came down to the fact that this music and Khan scared the crap out of me and I think we all know what scene I'm going to talk about but when, when he's telling that story about how he came to be abandoned on the planet and the score just bubbles along in the background and there's this brooding menace and a fear that underpins those words and it's a brilliant um, I think piece of delivery by Ricardo Mountsboom and it does what a truly great soundtrack should always do, which is complement as opposed to dominate. And as an impressionable child, it, it got my imagination running. I would reenact those battles with toys in my bedrooms, age seven, and under. and I would always put the film on in the background. And I was lucky enough to inherit my parents' old TV and video. I didn't have a TV area; I was only allowed to watch videos. But I'd, I'd, I'd actually beaten my brother. Um, at some game, I, I, we, 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 I think we played Top Trump to decide who got it, and I had won. And uh, in the end, I think that's probably a fair choice because I, I certainly uh, got more news out of it than he ever would. But I used to put the soundtrack on in the background as I played, and it kind of filled the gaps for me between kind of the the, the reality of playing with Star. I think actually my Star Wars Star. Um, ships were the stand-in Starship Enterprise and things like that but it just got used to completely take me away and I would spend hours doing that and it's one of those things you think about I, th I guess I've got quite nostalgic lately and, it, and I think about how kind of happy and content I was in my own little world just listening to that soundtrack and watching that film over and over again the next exposure I had to him also came with a science fiction film and I'm going to con contest now that I was way, way, way too young to watch this film. I don't know how my parents allowed it. I think my dad was pretty lax. But I seem to definitely remember being 
I think I was about, probably about eight, I think, when I first saw Aliens. And obviously I loved kind of the fact that this film was all about guns and things like that. And it was kind of had kind of action scenes in it. But the soundtrack I seem to remember, and I, I distinctly recall seeing James Horner's name on the opening credits and really being quite proud of myself announcing, well, that's the man that did the, the, the sound, the music for Wrath of Khan. And he'd also done Kroll as well in 1983, which was another film. We used to rent that occasionally from the video shop and get it confused with um, countless other science fiction films. There's that one Battle Beyond the Stars or something like that that used to be on. I think it was a 3D Star Star Hunter or something, Adventures in the Forbidden Zone. I always used to get confused with that, I think. But I'd seen, I, I, didn't, I didn't actually know that was a James Horner score, but I seem to remember kind of watching Kroll quite a lot. And although I probably recognised some of the, the musical hooks and kind of associated with being him, but Aliens was definitely the one where I was like, oh my God, it's another James Horner m- music. And going back and listening to the soundtrack to Aliens, I, I, I think it's one of the best soundtracks ever made and I, 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 I don't obviously like to I, anyone who knows this show will know that I'm not a fan of massive hyperbolic statements like that but I genuinely do I think that I, I'm not going to say it's the best soundtrack ever but I certainly think it belongs into in a, a part of a group of soundtracks which would, would constitute being some of the best and it's, it's another one that's in, kind of infused with this brooding sense of menace and this militaristic hooks and Alien, Aliens, anyway, the Alien franchise is essentially a film about films about survival, and when kind of when you separate Aliens from the guns and the set pieces and the aliens, as it were, um, it, it's sort of a tragedy. This film, you know, Ripley is a broken person; her child is dead. Um, she's survived a horrific ordeal, and. She's, she's not come out of this in a good place. She's essentially even more lost. You know, she's a, a person out of time, even. You know, this isn't, you know, imagine how scary it would be waking up in 50 years and how much the world would have changed. Imagine looking, you know, you'd be reaching for a, your mobile phone and it'd be some other device. And you can imagine just this kind of, this future shock that you would be going through. And it's one of the things people don't, when they talk about Alien, I think it's one thing they don't kind of think about enough, really, is the fact that you've got this character who's completely out of time now. And what Aliens teaches is that we as a species are, we are not the superior from nature. It's it's that kind of HG Worlds, I suppose, War of the Worlds type um, lesson to the film, in that you can have all the technology you want, but really nature will always win. And despite the kind of the technological superiority, it's the kind of the greed and the lack of humanity in humans that always make us so perilously close to extinction. And you have that in Aliens, and it's, it's very, it's not even subtle, is it, really? And what I, what I love about this score is that it's not celebratory, I don't think. It's more rooted in a brooding sense of doom. You never feel safe with it. It doesn't give you kind of audible reassurances or any kind of romance or anything like that to it. It just seems to me that this is a classic horror soundtrack. And you're not meant to feel safe with it. And I think it's quite interesting because I went to go and watch um, David Copperfield and he, he was doing this kind of thing where he was being sawn in half. And I know he knew, he knew one, of the, one of the cues from Aliens. And it worked brilliantly. This kind of on the edge of your seat, oh my God, what's going to happen? It was actually an incredible illusion, I, I, I have to say. But um, it, it's hugely dramatic. 
and I, I suppose the sense I even reference something completely separate from the film being used in such a dramatic context shows how you can it doesn't you can separate it from the film and it still works but even when you know, Ripley goes on a solo mission to rescue you it's almost impossible not to be on the edge of your seat and although you kind of know she's safe I guess it's kind of there's always that sense that you just don't know you can see all these people getting wiped out and you, I guess it's a kind of a trick that kind of James Cameron and James Horner managed to pull off that they can even make you think that the lead character might not be entirely safe because you simply don't know and that was another one which I think that I think I probably love the film more than the soundtrack but I've got I've gone back to it and I've li I sometimes listen to it when I'm out running and I have it on in the background and it, it's just so brilliant and I can't recommend it. it's one of those ones where there was a deluxe version I think you can actually listen to that on Spotify as well but I so recommend getting hold of that but it'd be a few years before really I kind of delved massively into kind of Horner's work but I seem to remember in my early teens, um, the, the concept of pocket money had arrived and I also got hold of my first CD player and I, my parents didn't really buy much music and I, I didn't have a particularly large collection, they weren't massive music music fans I suppose. And um, My brother was definitely and he was always buying CDs and vinyl and I think my kind of love of collecting came from him. And when my parents used to give me pocket money, this is, and I had my first CD, this is the first time I began to purchase music myself. And for some reason, the actual thought of buying a soundtrack did seem a little bit odd to me. Um, you know, my, my, I guess my philosophy was, why didn't you just watch the film? Because that way you got the, kind of the best of both worlds. And it seemed a little bit odd to kind of listen to it independently. But, and, and the other aspect as well, I remember soundtracks were really expensive to buy on CD. I mean, and for, for UK listeners, I'm sure you'll be familiar with Our Price, which um, I, was, we were, I was reminiscing about Our Price the other day, and it was the only, I, I seem to distinctly remember, it had cigarette dip, place to put your fag out in, in the shop, which just seems insane now. But HMV as well, I seem to remember, like, soundtracks cost like £15, and when I began to kind of get pocket money, I had to save up. And it was in... 1995 that I actually bought my first soundtrack and it was after I'd gone to go and see the still brilliant um, despite historically dubious Braveheart. Now I actually picked this soundtrack up when I was doing a road trip around Australia with my mother and father and I actually got it in a record shop in Brisbane I think and it was something like $10 which wasn't a massive amount of time but I I honestly can't remember how many times I actually listened to it on that trip and I owe this soundtrack a debt of gratitude really because it was my first proper introduction to listening to classical music and actually really appreciating it and this is something that's lasted my entire life and as I mentioned before I, you know, I will pretty much listen to anything but I, I really from buying this CD and listening to the music separate of the film it just completely took me away and I, I remember it kind of kicked the doors open and I went back to, to, to Braveheart um, not only the film and the soundtrack again quite recently and as I said I, I love the film um, I know it's Mel Gibson and we're not allowed to like Mel Gibson because he, he says horrible things but whatever he makes incredible films so I'm going to forgive him for his craziness and perhaps we need a bit of crazy in the world um, I suppose he says that with kind of ISIS going on there crazy but he, I don't think Mel Gibson's ISIS crazy but um, I'm getting distracted but anyway the point of the matter was that Going back and listening to the Braveheart soundtrack, it's brilliant. It is such, it's so 
um, epic and it kind of it totally takes me away and I've had the pleasure of actually listening to it whilst driving around Scotland as well and it is the soundtrack for that country for me um, I'm sure a lot of Scots people probably would be horrified by that um, but yeah to me it's it's the perfect accompaniment and whenever I see kind of rolling hills times I've been over to Ireland and um, with my girlfriend and kind of been out around the mountains around where she lives I always think about that music when I'm out there and it's so emotive to me and I guess it kind of then comes on to bat. and by this stage of my life you know 16 or whatever 15, 16 I think I was a full-blown cinemaphile, so I was going through, I was devouring James Horner soundtracks. It's probably a good thing we didn't have things like Spotify in those days, because I would have just done my parents' head in, but um, yeah, of course that year, later on in that year, 95, we also had Apollo, Apollo 13, which is another thing we've gone back to as well. Quite recently, there was a um, new remaster of the Blu-ray of that, actually. And that's another film that I really, really enjoy, and I love the music for, but I suppose it's the, po- this is the, the, the part of the conversation where I'm going to lose some... Uh, cred and I don't I might have mentioned it before I might not have done but I really love Titanic the film um, it was one of the seminal it's one of the greatest trips to the cinema I've ever had now I don't think I've had enough alcohol to get into a, a, a kind of a dissection of why I like Titanic so much but it was just the film that came along at the right time in my life and I still stand by it today yes you know it has its its dialogue issues but it, it completely worked for me and one of the facts about it was the music and Yes, I know it has that incredibly awful Celine Dion uh, a soundtrack to it, but looking back, you know, I went from Wrath of Khan, really, um, which I can't remember how old I was when I watched that. I must have been six, seven. And from that period up until Titanic when I was 18, that's a, you know, that's a pretty important part of your life, I suppose. Um, and to be able to kind of look back at that and think of all those soundtracks that I liked and it's not just you know the ones that I've mentioned today there's so many in there as again you know the Patriot Games which I really enjoyed um Willow An American Tale Commando that was another film I used to watch repeat Cocoon Field of Dreams there's just so many in there of which they were they they were films that I had in my, my formative years which and it's nice, I think, to associate music with some of the fondest times of your life. And I do that with James Horner's work. Um, he was a, a composer who, like I said with Braveheart, the kind of the imagery and the iconography that just his music evokes. And they work perfectly, I think, with big budget Hollywood cinema. I think that was where he he, he thrived, really. Um, and as, as I, I, I don't feel kind of mean, I suppose, or to say that again the films especially kind of in the past kind of decade you know just didn't they, I can't really can't really identify soundtracks perhaps as, as much more want to I mean films like The Perfect Storm which is one that I really I, I feel I enjoy but I don't remember his music from that Enemy of the Gates you know Iris The Beautiful Mind they're all films which to me are kind of I, I don't remember I don't I don't recall his soundtracks as much as I did before but He's left a gift to cinema, which I think will keep on giving for many, many years, and people will fall in love with his work and those films for years to come. And I think it, it kind of reminds me of something, especially when I was watching Braveheart again, and there was uh, that particular scene at the end where we see kind of Wallace having all kind of horrible things done to him, and we get the iconic line, freedom, and the music you know, swells around it. And I was reminded of a tattoo 
that I once saw on a girl's arm in a nightclub and it said quite simply goosebumps never lie and I, 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 I remember I, I distinctly recalled that when I was watching Braveheart again and that's what his music did and an emotional reaction to someone to, to anything really be it a book or a film or music yeah that's you know it's just it's a deeply personal thing and obviously they come in kind of different forms and in, in different ways and obviously some people might watch Braveheart and go what a load of crap and simply walk out but for, for to me it, it is one of those moments where the hairs on the back of your neck stand up and a lot of that owes to his music and I think it was just something of a jolt to me when he suddenly died and I began to kind of think about and listen to those soundtracks again and yeah I, I completely agree with that statement that goosebumps never lie and through James Horner's work I've had enough of those over the years watching and listening to those soundtracks so so you know go and have a look on Spotify I, I've set I've set up a soundtrack um, I'll post a link to it. I've got a soundtracks playlist and see kind of the James Horner soundtracks in there and you, if you want to of course and some have a look at some of the pics that I've taken out because um yeah, an extraordinary talent and a very, very sad day for cinema when he passed. Okay, so next up is a review of Abdi Arami's Sasako, and I think it's um, just worth kind of prefacing this. That I did actually see this film a few weeks ago, and it, it just took me a while to kind of get my thoughts down on it. And I know it's kind of not exactly kind of in the cinemas at the moment. I do believe it's out on Blu-ray in, in the United States. Um, it was nominated for an Academy Award for, for Best Foreign Language Film, so it has been around some time. I think its availability will be coming. I, 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 I actually understand. I think it's out quite soon on Amazon, but. Um, so it's not, it's not necessarily a film that you can see in the cinemas at the moment. I just want to kind of preface this by, and just in case anyone kind of emailed me to say that you know this kind of film had been in the cinemas a while back. But it took me a while to kind of work out how I thought about this film, and I was actually um, lucky enough to get hold of a copy of it in Blu-ray so I could go back and watch it again. And I thought, kind of seeing it 
twice, I think would give me a better insight into it. So I just need to kind of preface that before I talk about it. Okay, so Timbuktu focuses around a farm called Kadani's wife, Satma, and their 12-year-old daughter. Um, they live in Mali, and I've kind of I have a, a life which is spent around farming um, their herd and having kind of family sing songs, and they seem to have kind of a peaceful existence, devoid of kind of external threat. Um, rooted it in a kind of very traditional way of life um, and, and they present a very kind of happy content family unit now a grotesque form of modernity arrives in the form of jihadists who begin to exert their vile form on religion on the locals events spiral out of control when one of the Kadans heard uh, and a cow called GPS is killed by a fisherman and Kadan is arrested by the militants facing the harsh form of Sharia law now, the opening of Timbuktu sets the tone, really, for the film, because jihadists shoot up some traditional local statue and they fire their AKs at gazelles. And we don't really know why they're doing it, probably because they're offended in some way. Yet, The message is painfully clear. These people are contemptuous of any other culture, only other than their own warped one. Apparently inspired by the story of a couple stoned to death for having a child out of wedlock, director Sasaka himself is a Malian citizen began developing Timbuktu um, in response to this incident. Now, there is absolutely nothing more depressing at the moment in the world than seeing the rise of Islamic State and militant Islam across Arabia and Africa. We are, even if we don't like to admit it, presently in a war of ideals and one of the West seems utterly incapable of fighting, let alone understanding. We seem more interested in pointing the finger at ourselves and trying to explain the reasons why the likes of Islamic State have risen rather than we do for coming up with a coherent plan for defeating them if that is actually something we can do. And I think sometimes what we lose track of really is the fact that there are millions of victims who live under constant threat and fear of these people. And sadly, and obviously for, it's mostly Muslims who kind of tend to suffer at these people's hands, it's a thoroughly depressing state of affairs and one that's really made me wonder how filmmakers are going to deal with this issue. The complexity of the problem leads to it won't be Hollywood or any other areas of mainstream scenes that flock to this subject. And just to kind of talk a little bit, kind of a bit more broadly, I suppose. I mean, if you take something like Iraq, we're beginning to see films about that subject come out, and most notably recently, kind of the film American Sniper, which I think took something. You know, there's no getting away from the fact that Iraq was a truly horrific human tragedy. And what American Sniper does it is it simplifies this and to an extent glorifies through the prism of westernized mainstream multiplex sensibilities that the, what actually happened in Iraq was really a tragedy for the West and most notably one person who was involved in that war and it, it kind of is what is the same that we have with Vietnam films for example now in Vietnam, you, know, you had in Southeast Asia, as a, a direct result of, of that war, millions of people died, culminating in the Khmer Rouge and the killing fields of Cambodia. However, Hollywood tends to ignore this, you know, and as does the rest of the world, really. You know, 55,000 Americans died in Vietnam. Yet we have a kind of a, a currency system that really works on human life. So the fact that 55,000 people died, Americans died in Vietnam, that's infinitely worse than the millions of Southeast Asians do, do. And it's morally abject that we've actually kind of come to this. And it, it's something that kind of does kind of bother me a little bit because I think we lose track of 
the real issues surrounding these types of events. And I think in a way Timbuktu goes some way to address this issue and the fact that we begin to look at people as people and they're there you know it doesn't matter where they live or who they are that their lives are as important as anyone else's and i think this kind of helps really the fact that this is an absolutely beautiful film to watch it's complemented by some outstanding performance and even in the midst of the the pain visit on these people there are some rather wonderful moments of humor to enjoy However, this isn't to say that I didn't have some issues with it, and mainly this comes from the form of how I feel Islam in general is presented in the film. Now, Suzaka has stated that he believes that Islam has been hijacked, in a way, by the kind of the violence and the jihadists, and that Islam is a tolerant, peaceful religion. And this statement has become something of a cultural meme, and politicians and social commenters alike seem unable to grasp that it is inherently false. Now, there is no peaceful religion if you look through the Quran the Torah or the Bible you will, you will find page after page of genocide and, and just evil barbarity that would make even the most awful dictator blush however yeah there is one peaceful religion it's called Jainism actually and however any monotheist religion that somehow presents itself as being a religion of peace is simply wrong and now there is an issue I think when that people just don't really want to address the fact that yes you can go through the bible and you can find anything in the bible you can justify slavery you can justify um killing your wife well c killing your bride-to-be on her wedding night if you find out that she isn't a virgin there's all these types of horrific things you can do that we simply don't do because we know that it would make us miserable and it's a horrible thing to do so even the most devoutest of christian isn't going to go out and kill someone on a sunday for not attending church and you know, it simply doesn't happen. And obviously people say and do stupid, horrible things in the name of Christianity. But, you know, one argument I was having with someone the other day who was saying that kind of like, you know, you have like the Westboro Baptist Church. Well, and, you know, comparing that to like saying, well, they're, they're like ISIS. And the comparison is completely ridiculous to Westboro Baptist Church and nothing like ISIS. Yes, they represent... Um, a very extreme interpretation of Christianity, but what they're saying, for a large part, is backed up by religious theology. It's just the fact that we've moved on as a society, we recognise that what they're saying is hateful and disgusting and should be ridiculed and not taken seriously. The issue that you have within Islam is that there are verses in the Quran that demand its followers take up jihad and either basically you either convert or you die. and this isn't the, a, 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 a tolerant religion, which so many people seem to say. You know, if you're an atheist and you refuse Kurt, then you, you are pretty much dead. And, and obviously, a vast portion of the Muslim world doesn't adhere to this. They don't do these horrific things. Yet alarming numbers do, and more so than any other religion. They take this literal translation of what the Quran says. Everything that ISIS does is backed up by Islamic theology. You know, smite the head of the unbeliever is a clear instruction in the Quran. So, you know, why, why is this? Why is this? This is the real issue for me, and I, and I think it's something that needs to be addressed. And I think, in a way, Timbuktu reflects Sasako's attitude that you know, somehow Islam has been hijacked. So I don't think what the film does is it truly explores the fact that the actions of these Islamists is being done in the name of religion. And they're doing it because they believe it's right. And I think it's a slightly disingenuous look 
at what this the, the fundamental issue is here. There's a scene where they go to the local mullah and he and he lectures them on the benign qualities of the Quran. Um, yet, and 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 he can yeah you know, he can quote certain passages and yet there's easily the justification for what they're doing as well within the same text. So, but I don't think the film really explores this in enough detail. And you know, why is one going one direction, one going in the other now? There's an argument which I hear, and I, it, it really gets on my nerves actually, which is kind of say that the reason why we have um, you know, you know, violent jihadists is because it's geopolitical and it's this kind of victimization that some Muslims claim to be subjected to, you know, and the kind of the ills that the West has wrought on the Muslim world. And I think it kind of fills into a, so it feeds straight into kind of a liberal guilt mentality that we are somehow to blame for. It's kind of like this masochism that we have, you know, that, you know, ISIS, this is all our fault. ISIS is all the West's fault. This is totally our, we, we are, the, the blame is, should be laid squarely on us. And I don't think that's correct at all. Um, it's abundantly clear that everything these, these people do comes from their faith. You know, Islamic State, and they like cite their faith as the motivation all the time. So you know, people like Glenn Greenwald, for example, will, will kind of happily ignore these proclamations and, and then kind of inform everyone that you know don't take what they're saying literally. Um, it, it's it, it's it's deeper reasons than that, and I, I don't think it is. I, I I'm convinced that when these people blow themselves up, they they genuinely believe they are going to. To, to paradise they, they genuinely believe that when they cut the heads off people they are doing something which is pleasing their god and I, this this that's the issue i think it's, it's something far more terrifying for perhaps than kind of simplifying it into this it's geopolitical it's historical it's you know it's it's the west's attitude and, you know i mean let, let's be honest you know were it not for oil the west would have no interest in the middle east so you know, the, the fact that you know, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced still, even if you didn't have that kind of the, the polemic of having the West involved in the Middle East in any way, there would still be all, all these hideous things all going on all over the Muslim world. And it's interesting because in Timbuktu, the local population at first baffled by the Islamist demands. Um, there's no music, women must cover their hands, football is banned. And in the film's standout sequence, a, a group of lads play an imaginary game of football and it almost has this kind of Monty Python-esque sense of absurdity to it as the boys kind of celebrate scoring these imaginary goals and saving these imaginary balls. Yet, what kind of starts off kind of seemingly petty soon begins to manifest in the cruel public floggings and stonings become the norm. And Sasako shows these moments as fleeting vignettes of cruelty. And we don't need to see them in any detail either, I don't think. Indeed, the kind of the barbarity that is, you know, the hallmark of kind of like ISIS to you. These videos, we've seen, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't watch them. I make a point of not watching, but we're, we've seen enough of this to know exactly what kind of goes on. So I think it was a good thing that he didn't kind of show these scenes any longer than they have to. But the kind of the thing about the film is that even the Islamists are slightly confused. You know, there's um, at one stage they hear the singing and they kind of radio in to find out if they should arrest the person singing because they're actually praising the Lord. And again, it's this kind of slightly obscene, I'm uh, sorry, absurd moment because they don't really seem to know if the fact that the singing itself is blasphemous or, you know, should they let this person off? You know, is it just singing in general that they don't like? If so, you know, why not? You know, it, it, it's crazy. And, what you kind of notice is the fact is that music is plays such an integral role to the society and the culture of the people in the film. And when the music is banned, what you actually get is a sense that these militants are actually eroding the cultural identity of people. And they kind of want to merge them into one homogenous banner under Islam. And what you kind of see is the fact that this is 
it's a tragedy that this is happening because what you're actually doing is we're losing these, these people are losing their way of life and I think it's quite interesting perhaps that the, the cow's named GPS because obviously that's a kind of a device for finding oneself in the world and the fact that it becomes lost perhaps is slightly relevant of, of Mali in itself you know without its cultural identity where is this country going and it's an important issue and you sort of see the kind of the the hypocrisy of these men as well you know they ban football yet kind of sit there discussing the merits of Zenazine Zidane and failing to recognise that the fact that they are discussing the very thing that they allow to happen around them. And you know, the leader of them as well, you know, he's, he's kind of partial to the old cigarette. And the, the effect on these people becomes quite evident. You know, a gun and threats of violence are a good way of fight of people finding a new sense of piety, yet the contradiction in this approach to religions that they're for all to see you know, point a gun at someone's head and tell them to believe and you will probably get no doubt get a reaction that they will begin to kind of be slightly more um, devout to their religion however you know are they, are they really doing that or are they just doing to appease the person holding a gun at them and I, I think this film shows how fundamentally anti-humankind these people are their, their worldview is miserable and extreme and stifling any form of human expression and enjoyment readily sucks the meaning out of existence and this just becomes a very kind of depressing way of life and there's, you know, there's a couple of moments we see some jihadists kind of making their video and I was reminded of um, Chris Morris's excellent film Four Lines which I actually think today is the best exploration of modern jihadists and you know we can observe and laugh but the fundamental issue is that is that these seemingly normal human beings um, seem so readily to kind of commit these evil deeds and there's only one thing that can do that to someone and it's religion in this case it's Islam and I just think Suzako is avoiding a more important issue in the film that he doesn't dig deep enough into and I would say what the film does do is exude and celebrate the humanity of of the people who live there you know it's the scenes with um, Gudan and his wife I, I love those very simple moments and the kind of the warmth that you can see from them and just the kind of how happy they are and I don't want to kind of do the kind of oh they're happy in their basic existence it's not that at all it's just they're just they're just happy doing what they're doing and being a family and of course that's something which is universal to the entire world and there's, there's a there's a, a, a moment where one woman is given 80 lashes for singing and her cries become really a kind of a chorus of defiance and the what you see is that these Islamists they're not doing anyone any good they're not they're not doing anything but showing how far removed from the human species that they've become and Towards the end of the film, we see the daughter of Kadan Safia running across the dunes, and it was reminded more of the all-time greats of Truffaut's The 400 Blows, and as the camera kind of closes in on, on the face of Anton Donnell, his future teeth is on a knife edge, that you are kind of completely in the present, and yet totally um, conscious of what the future might bring for this child. And we see this echoed in Tim Buck too, and youth and the possibility of the future, of everything coming together, and... It's, it's an obsessive theme, I think, for cinema, this kind of, you know, where are our lives going? You know, there's so many kind of, you know, what will become of our children and what will become of us? And I think Timbuktu ends with the very moment a child's life will change forever. And then you cannot help but wonder what kind of a life this child is going to have, because it's either going to be kind of wallow in this kind of mire of religious hypocrisy and oppression or you want something better to happen. But I think the thing that troubles me a little bit is that we don't know what this better is yet, especially in relation to the rise of and the spread 
of what I consider to be Islamic fascism across Africa and the Middle East. And I think one thing it did do as well is show how, for me, how, how forgotten cinematically a country Africa is in my own kind of film. I can't recall the last film I saw from this continent. And this is down to my own ignorance. And I think it's time really that I kind of look into more African films, which I certainly intend on doing. But overall, I did really like Timbuktu. I just... I felt in some way a little bit of a missed opportunity and I was just a little bit conflicted about how it presents Islam. But overall, um, this is definitely a brilliant film and I, I thoroughly recommend it. I used to daydream about being old enough to go on dates. I had this image of myself holding hands with a really cute guy driving along some pretty road. It's never about going anywhere, really. It's having some sort of freedom, I guess. <laughs> okay. You awake? What are you are not going to believe me, and I need you to remember what I'm saying. This thing, it's gonna follow you. Somebody gave it to me, and I passed it to you. Wherever you are, it's somewhere walking straight for you. All you can do is pass it along to someone else. I'm scared. I need to find him. What did he really do to you? Apparently he used a fake name to rent a house in the city. This isn't real, I swear to you, this is just some game. If it kills her, it gets me. It goes straight down the line to whoever started it. What exactly is supposed to be following you? I don't know. Something happened. That's not what she thinks, okay? You don't believe me. Mom? No, it's me. Everything's okay. It could look like someone you know, or it could be a stranger in a crowd. Whatever helps it get close to you. Okay, so it's almost as cliche as cliche can be. A girl wearing nightwear and high heels runs into the street clearly terrified. It's suburban, middle, upper middle class America, and we don't need to know the location, but we know from watching films and this drama that this is a cinematically familiar place to us. You don't have to be a detective to know that this girl is popular at school, the apple of her father's eyes. Now. Will it be a man in a mask that comes out running after her? Will it be some kind of crazed monster? In fact, it's actually nothing. Her neighbour offers help, she refuses. Her father asks her what's wrong before she runs into the house and out again and leaps into a car and speeds off. 
there's an ominous soundtrack, kind of pounding, menacing beat, and eventually we find a dead on a beach. So far, so generic, minus the rather annoying dose of irony that seems to be prevalent in virtually all kind of genre films now. It, it follows hardly grabbed me from the beginning, it had to be said. Now, the trouble I find with the horror genre is that we often find ourselves with an intriguing setup undone by some rather poor payoff, be it an ancient curse or indeed any other kind of cliched moment where the, the, the protagonists suddenly realise that they have to perform a certain ritual to stop all this from going on. And I think I've got to the point where I've kind of seen too many of these types of films, and I, I think it kind of plagues science fiction a little bit too. Um, you know, Interstellar, for example, couldn't just kind of keep being about science. We had to have the kind of the, the, the person turning and going psychotic, and it's just... It always strikes me as things just about to get interesting. All the kind of the good work that's been done before is kind of ruins what really kind of appears to be this kind of fear of moving away from kind of easily identifiable conventions. And so it gives me great pleasure to report that It Follows really kind of completely bucked the trend and kind of served me back my own smugness in a way and showed me something that I hadn't really seen in many, many years. Now, there is most definitely a real representation of the male gaze in this film. From the opening sequence, for example, the camera pans along the pavement up to the lead character, Jay, played by the brilliant Mika Maronro. And we see her kind of about to get into a swimming pool, and between her and us is the tree and a fence, and the image is layered in such a way that we are most definitely watching from the perspective of titillation, if not for our own. Now, there is a danger being conveyed in this shot, and she does not know that she is being watched. And as the camera zooms in, it's, it's quite clear to the viewer that she is the next victim of whatever there's going to be the force in this film. And I hate to use it, use this term, but it, I found this approach to be incredibly Hitchcockian in the sense that from the start, there isn't kind of any kind of real sense that this film is in a rush to start scaring you immediately with sudden bangs and jumps. It seems a lot more subtle and structured and calculating than that. And it's easy to make the kind of the crash bang wallop film. And yeah, you know, you do jump and you flinch and the kind of the scare value to me is akin to that of a roller coaster. There's this element I find that you are always completely safe. What, what I find about those types of films is that they're a wholly unsatisfying experience and they kind of represent almost kind of zero replayability for me. In It Follows, you have what I thought was a very kind of brooding and deeply hypnotic quality to the film. And sexuality and sexual tension are ever-present elements in it. And as Jay kind of prepares for her first date, I was reminded of the likes of films like Brad Palmer's Carrie or even Roman Polanski's Repulsion. And all these films take female sexuality and turn it into a dangerous, potentially lethal arena. And at this stage, we're not kind of quite quite sure of really what's kind of going on is jay going to be a threat to other people or is some or some kind of threat going to be coming to hers and it follow plays on the fears that sexually active females are kind of somehow like a danger to, to, to society and all you need to do is to look at something like amanda knox um who i believe for one was to be innocent of the crime of which she was eventually found innocent of but let's not forget one thing here was a woman who because the media had decided was promiscuous was kind of vilified and demonized for that very reason she was duped into believing she had contracted hiv the nickname foxy noxy was adoptus and she was murderous in her sexual lust it was 
as if she was some kind of diseased, violent killer motivated to harm others because she liked having sex. And society doesn't like these types of women. And, and, I, and, and I, dare say, I say types sarcastically, you know, these, these are the girls your mother doesn't want you to end up with. And you know, they're kind of, they're the ones that will end up sleeping with your best mate. And you know, you'll end up probably contracting some form of sexually transmitted disease from them. And it's, it's prevalent in our society that we're almost kind of oblivious to it. You know, re- reverse this on, say, someone like George Clooney. Now, here's a good-looking man who we know was something of a, you know, enjoyed the ladies. And he was hardly vilified. Instead, we kind of loved him for it. You know, he represents a kind of a challenge. He is sophisticated. We don't call him a whore or suggest he should apologise for it. Neither should we with, with, with women. And yet... It's the kind of the psychosis of this kind of women as being somehow a danger that it kind of goes into it. And I don't think that the film is playing to that stereotype. I actually kind of think it's very intelligently critiquing this view of women. And I think Jay is, is punished in a way for kind of for seeking sexual gratification. And and the ambiguity of it follows is represented in the title. You know, this, this could, you know, this could very much be kind of down to some kind of reputational thing. I was once introduced to a girl via some friends and promptly warned by one of her supposed friends that I should watch out as she was a a slag, apparently. And it, it kind of amused me um, in a way because it was kind of like, it, it just seemed that this person was incredibly nice. She had this kind of reputation and I don't even know where it had come from. But you know, why was that? You know, why the fact that even if she had, had, had slept with a few people, why, why even add that as a caveat when you introduce someone they can't can't they just be a nice person who en- enjoys having sex it seems very strange to me but you know we, I, th- I think the kind of the idea of women being sexually confident kind of subverts the role that we think women should have we want them to we want them we expect them to be sexually subservient to men and adopt a more i suppose kind of traditional role within the world and and to me it's it's, it's complete garbage you know we we strive for female equality yet it seems that this kind of inequality comes with caveats that seems to completely undermine the whole thing in the first place and and it follows punishes jay for her sexual encounter and before we see her going on a date and having sex she's always kind of wearing red underwear it's far more dare i say sexually alluring and afterwards she's had sex and this kind of what's happening has been explained to her she stares into the mirror wearing kind of, I, I suppose, desexualized underwear is the best way to it. It's, it's far more conservative than what she was wearing before. And when she's in the hospital, we don't see her being surrounded by sympathetic nurses or police officers. She is just on her own and it's been completely, and, and, and spatially as well. Director David Mitchell completely separates her from you and she uses space really to literally literally say this person is alone and what's really interesting is i think that kind of michael isolates her with the kind of compositions we always kind of see her completely alone with kind of literally kind of wide space either side of her and it's a very visual representation of the social shunning she has found herself in and she's alienated herself by her kind of by what's happened to her from the safety of kind of general conformity and really it's here really I found what the film's kind of horror credentials became kind of truly terrifying because the it in it follows, it follows manifests itself in a variety of ways. Mostly it's a slow person who simply walks towards you and it doesn't run, it doesn't kind of speak or it just simply moves towards you and it can easily be outrun. Yet it is a kind of, it will always come back after you at some stage. Now, 
it's it's such a simple visual motif yet it is i think cinematically brilliant on the one hand mitchell makes this supernatural force easily defeatable you simply have to get away from it yet the invari the invariability of its reappearance is frankly pant wetting and you know what, what what if you're trapped in a confined space what if you fall asleep you know there is only one, and there is only one way to cure this message which you have to sleep with someone else and the film therefore puts Jay in a kind of truly awful situation. She can either die or become a sexual predator, and which she never was in the first place, and then adhere to this kind of slag stereotype. And it's just such an interesting conceit to turn sex into a method of survival. And it, for me, you know, the film takes what, you know, sex should be an enjoyable pastime and turns it into something, you know, literally that is a matter of life and death. And what's kind of even more interesting in the film is that she has kind of willing suitors you know her male friends around her who clearly really do like her and it, i became a little bit concerned that the film was going to kind of collapse in on itself and it doesn't indeed the final shot may be one of the most haunting in recent memories and there is so much to pick through and it follows it you know it virtually demands further viewing and again i was thinking of the way in which kind of film has kind of gone you know quite snobbish towards yarn filmmaking and it follows won't end up in the Criterion Collection one day, but it is worthy of discourse as any other. And the, the perception of genre filmmaking being kind of less than the kind of the output of, say, kind of the Darden Brothers is, is ridiculous. Film is film and should, shouldn't be divided as being worthy and the not worthy. And it follows is genuinely cinematic. It is it, it should be played on the widest screen possible. It is actually gorgeous to look at. It doesn't kind of cut and chop every three seconds the Mitchell really give you time to kind of digest and get into the images and it, it takes away the safety of, suburb, of suburbia sorry and turns it into this kind of existential nightmare that is impossible not to think about on a deeper level and everything I've said during this kind of review of it follows might be complete and utter twaddle but the very fact that it actually got me thinking this much about it I th and since I've seen it I, in fact I think it's testament to how good a film is and it follows isn't just a great f horror film it's a great film and I think that's something you know which you need to take on board when you watch this because I can easily say it's for me one of the biggest surprises in recent years I think Mitch was made a film that's going to be with us for, for many many years you know forget kind of visceral thrills this is cerebral and as scary as filmmaking gets you think kind of Kubrick Polanski Chuckinson Bergman and you, you kind of have hopefully an idea of how good I think it is and I really cannot stress how I think you should go and watch this film and pick it up right away Okay, so that's going to be the, that for this episode of the 24 Frames Cast. Many thanks for listening. Um, you can find me at 24framescast.blogspot.com. You can follow me on Twitter at 24framescast. You can listen to my other podcast with Joachim, which is the Masters of Cinema cast. You can find that at moccast.blogspot.com. We're over at Criterion Cast as well. So many thanks for listening, and I'll be back soon with another episode. Bye.